Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Globalist. Today we're looking expressly at design in all its shape-shifting glory. Coming up on the show, an all-star lineup of our very own editors and some special guests who'll be joining me to review the year's developments. From graphics and magazines, buildings and rebrands, we'll explore the successes and failures of 2013. I think when you're rolling out a new livery, don't leave anything behind for people to feel nostalgic about. If you're going to do it, go for it. We'll hear more from our editor-in-chief, Tyler Brule, in just a moment. Also coming up... Anna Santi, Deputy Editor of Drapers, will review the year's fashion news. And we'll get the lowdown from our Asia Bureau Chief, Fiona Wilson, from all the stories on her patch. There was a great project earlier in the year called House Vision that Kenya Hara organised. He got together a group of really top architects and he asked them to design a house. What is the house for the future? These were real possibilities of houses and it was fascinating to see great architectural minds turning their hand to something very, very practical. All that and more on the special design edition of The Globalist on Monocle 24. Lots to get through indeed. Let's begin with something of an overview. I look back over the last 12 months as actually something of a look forward. Last year, a number of developments from across the design industries took place that look set to alter the landscape in 2014. Finnish furniture giant Artec was bought by Swiss manufacturer Vitra. Louis Vuitton's chief creator Marc Jacobs left, with Balenciaga's Nicolas Gesquier now in the hot seat. And then there was a number of brands who had a bit of a makeover to take them through into the future. To reflect on these stories and many more besides, I'm joined by Monocle's editor-in-chief, Tyler Brulet. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me in your studio and your fine program. <laughs> you missed, our, I mean, one of the biggest design innovations of the years. You took over this bloody program. Exactly. Well, I mean, we, we sort of missed that. Don't blame my trumpet, but that's another show. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you want to start? Let's start with Artec and Vitra, which we've covered in well, we did. Yes, we covered that as really as, as almost breaking news uh, when that story came out. Part of the reason why we, we launched this very channel. It was quite um, incredible because I was in Finland uh, a few weeks ago and that story is still reverberating. And, and I think on one side, uh, you have a lot of people, you know, really sort of asking these questions. Can Finland uh, sustain this type of business? Why didn't it, it work out? Uh, and, and as we know, and for people not familiar with the story, you know, Artec, venerable brand, uh, was was owned by Preventus, a private equity company out of out of Sweden. And as as you said in the intro, there it gets snatched up by one of the world's most respected companies uh, in the world of of design in general. And and really, if you look at uh, the commitment that Rolf Failbaum, the owner and founder, you know, has to architecture and industrial design it, and and urbanism, he's created his own you know little world practically. It's quite amazing. And yet, I think you know Finland is in many ways is such a a closed market. And, and the Finns are quite special and they're very protective of their brands. And so I think there's still a lot of soul searching. The fact that this uh, you know, company, for all intents and purposes, you know, it, it's fully Swiss owned. And a big question mark is to, does it even have a future in, in Finland? Uh, you know, could this just you know, be a, another brand that migrates to other cities? There's also a huge look that they might move their center of gravity from Helsinki to Berlin, for example. Yeah, which is kind of timely, I guess, with Microsoft and Nokia. It's, you know, Finland is sort of opening up to the world. Do you think Artec want to sort of try and keep that finishedness, which is so much part of Artec and the sort of DNA of the brand? Or I think they have to because yes, you want to push the brand forward, but I think there's you know there's an opportunity to be a you know not the singular brand, but I think there's certainly scope to still be one of those players out of that region. If you look at also you know not just emerging but established markets, you know, the Japanese like the fact that this is a brand that is from Finland, not that it's something which happens to be designed in Finland and made somewhere else. So I think Mirko, the CEO, she has her her work cut out for her. In terms of, I think, cons, you know, convincing their their existing base, and and I've heard murmurs. I was chatting to her. There's, you know, there's a talk about where do they go and what part of, you know, how far do they take it from being sort of stools and sofas and and, and beds, etc. Does it become, you know, more smaller objects? You know, does it move into lighting more? So, you know, I wish them well. They couldn't be in better hands, but mm. I I hope that they respect the provenance. Yeah, because she's got, I mean, sort of grand plans for the brand, and she's incredibly sort of capable, absolutely quite inspirational woman to to meet. And yes. Talk with. Um, so Louis Vuitton, a new man in the hot seat. Yeah, Is it in, much of a surprise that he... 
It's not much of a surprise. It's about as surprising uh, that when we heard that Nicolette Gesker was going there, it was almost as surprising as uh, that we heard that um, that Tom Daly was gay. Um, so no, um, it was uh, it was it was amazing to sort of listen and how this unfolded for weeks and weeks and weeks, and we thought we were going to get this official statement, and then finally, you know, it it is it is released, and and I you know I think I think when we look at it on balance, I think it it is a good thing. Mark Jacobs very talented, but I think it was time for him to to move on to a new assignment. And another sort of man in the movement this year, last past year, has been Richard Rogers, mm. who's celebrated. I like to say Richard Spencer Powell, who's been very quiet. He's in in, in <laughs> studio. Our, our creative director is also here um, as as well. Hi, Rich. Hi, Rich. Your take on Richard Rogers? Did you get out to see the the show early this year? Unfortunately, I didn't get to see it, but um, I'm a yeah, I'm a fan of him. Actually, I think he's a very interesting um, and important figure. And I think what's really nice about um, celebrating his work is that. Lots of these sort of star architects that build these things all over the world, not everyone gets to see them. And so I think by putting it, housing it in an exhibition, people can come and actually see the work and talk about it. And I think he's been so outspoken about London, and I think rightly so, his, his battles with Prince Charles. I think it's good for people to get around, look at that work, and have a bit of a debate about it, because I think he's, he makes some very valid points about the way you build a city. Mm, absolutely. I was invited along. I didn't I didn't make it either, sadly. But I think as you're saying, he's been I think such, you know, a force and, and a voice of reason. And maybe we you know, it's we're not fans of necessarily, you know, every single building. I don't want to live at uh, at one Hyde Park necessarily. But nevertheless, I think he has challenged the landscape and wonderful that he was he was recognized in that way as well. Yeah. And he con- continues to do so too, which we'll talk about in our next week's show when we look ahead. Rich, why we wanted to get you in here in particular was to talk about a couple of Interesting rebrand subjects which have happened over the past couple of months. First Absolutely. up was the big Sweden renovation, which we've discussed before. But I think big. No, I've got you both. <laughs> I think big's maybe the wrong the wrong word there. Um, one year in the making, and it's the Swedish flag. Interesting. I've done a little bit of research about that after we initially covered it, and um, I think one of the disappointments there is that they, the way they announced it was just simply, oh, here's the uh, flag, here's the rebrand, we're either genius or or idiots. I can't remember what their quote was. But actually, if you then go to their website and see all the other branding work they've done, it is a bit more expansive than they've actually kind of initially kind of let on. And I don't really know why they did it in, with such a sort of... You mean of, the way they released it or... Yeah, the way they released it. It was a kind of apologetic, of, wasn't it? A little it? bit of a sort of squeaky fart, really. <laughs> I think they should have announced it and, and shown more of it because... Who knows? It could be it could be really great, but I just think they, yeah, I don't know why they just came out with such a sort of mm. yeah. me- meager offering. Tyler, what was your take on it? Did you think it was particularly well? I, I think or? as Rich and, and I now you've really prompted me to go and look at at what's sort of lying behind it as well, and if you know, and if there is much more to it, because I, I think the same thing. You know, I would be sitting there as a taxpayer, really sort of scratching my head, saying, "What was all this fuss about?" And I think particularly if I think you know, Rich. Goodness, back what fifteen years ago, fourteen years ago, when Scandinavian Airlines you know, went through this massive and very sort of controversial relaunch of the SAS brand, and and they you know they did away with the white fuselage and sort of the, the, the sort of the traditional sort of you know Viking stripe that was down the aircraft, etc., and and came out with these beige planes with this blue tail and these hot orange engines, and it was it was this great work of, of Stockholm Lab. You know, there there was you know a real talking point, and there was but there was an instant body of work that you could see, like it or not you know you'd be able to sort of form an opinion i think based on on seeing you know a series of complete executions and and this is not what we were presented no absolutely not yeah. uh, i think i think offering up the timeline to say this is a year's work mm. i would have kept that quiet <laughs> <laughs> and asked for your money back from one airline to another american airlines who early mm. this summer had a bit of a a rejig. Well, they did. A few and, months and, on, how it's and this is this again. This is an, quite remarkable because I think so many people, you know, have long loved American Airlines for the fact that they just have these aluminium, you know, metallic uh, fuselages. They never paint their aircraft. Uh, then, you know, and it was interesting to see how they they parlayed that into an ecological story uh, when the time was right. Because you know, here are planes not carrying hundreds of kilos worth of paint on them, so there was a fuel savings. And then, quite out of nowhere, uh, and this is also you know came at a time when you know everyone was saying you know will they or will they not get into bed with uh, with U.S. Airways? And of course, you know, just over the past few weeks, we've seen that 
that marriage has, has now been, you know, officially consummated after, of course, it was, you know, there was a bit of a, a question mark on Capitol Hill as to whether that would go ahead. It did. I was not a fan in the very beginning. It was very Captain America. It, it seemed a little bit sort of too vocal and loud, but I guess with lots of things. it's uh, I didn't like Finnair in the beginning as well. I, I liked sort of the sky blue, and then suddenly you had this very sort of dark navy and this, this massive Finnair down the fuselage. But I quite like seeing those aircraft now, and I think the Navy in white works. And and I have to say that, I, you know, there are two things that, that Americans have done. They've rolled out the new livery very fast. I mean, oftentimes mm. we've seen U.S. carriers take a very long time. Most of the times when I'm, when I'm at Heathrow at the moment, I'm not seeing the old logo. So I think that's that's always key, I think, when you're rolling out a new livery. You know, don't leave anything behind for people to feel nostalgic about. If you're going to do it, go for it. And and I feel that they've they've done that. And... At least we're seeing some type of graphic innovation on the part of, of U.S. carriers because they've been so tired for so long. And I think we only have to look at the, the last merger between Continental and United, where they, they just took the Continental tail and they kept United at the front of the plane, which was just a massive cost savings exercise. And again, I, I sort of feel not unlike the, the Swedish rebrand. I don't, Rich, I don't know what you think. Um, I liked it. I, I mean, it's a hard one. Massimo Vignelli did the design. He, you know, he's an American classic graphic designer it's a mm-hmm. brave decision to change that and americans got some interesting stories if it's true or not but the myth is the reason they have got aluminium as their color is they couldn't afford to paint the planes in the first place and then they stuck with them oh rich about the pr didn't you <laughs> and then i think one of the reasons they've changed is that they can't if they go on to dreamliners they can't have the same fuselage yeah. so their hand was forced they're car- a carbon bit. fiber yeah yeah so their hand was forced they had to change their brand guidelines which is a tough thing to do but I think it's a little bit by the numbers. I, I take Tyler's point. It's a bit Captain America, but I sort of secretly quite liked it. Yeah. I thought it was actually quite nice, actually. And so, now having, I'm sure you've seen them in the airport stands around the world in your travels. What's it like sort of actually seeing them in the flesh now? Have you yeah, I quite impressive, like or? them. I think it's quite a crisp bit of work, mm, actually. Yeah. It's it's neat. And I think so many tail, you know, tail fins are still quite bland. I mean, it's such a great job to do an aeroplane. and There's quite a few naff ones out there. And yeah. I liked it. And, Graphic, it, and it's punchy. It's, yeah, it's, and it's got, it has presence as well. I think the other thing you should say, you know, or we, we can say about American too, is that they have ambition on, you know, on the inside. So they've, mm-hmm. they, they've got a, a new series of, of Airbus A321s that they've ordered, which they're going to be flying transcontinental in the United States now with a proper first class. You know, they're introducing flat beds because, you know, it, it's not exactly a short hop between JFK and LAX. And so I think, I think there as well, they're trying a little bit harder. I think the interesting thing about, out of all of this is that we've seen a lot of innovation over the last year in, you know, and we continue to see great innovation out of Asia. Uh, you know, Mark Newsom can, continues to do great work at Qantas, and he's got a whole new business class he's rolling out on their Asian aircraft. We, we had that in uh, the December-January issue. You know, and then also, you know, they, we see, you know, JetBlue, we see American all doing interesting things in North America. I think the sleepy one, or at least the sleepy continent is Europe. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing mm. innovative happening short haul in Europe, and if I look back at, you know, between BA, Air France, Lufthansa, everyone this year, nothing, nothing great stands Mm. out yeah Tyler many thanks indeed for opening the show with us we'll see you next week when we look ahead to 2014 Rich stay with us we'll be back in a moment with Poppy uh, to talk magazines graphics and more don't go away at GE the solutions we develop aren't just about boosting bottom lines they're about working towards a cleaner greener future Chief Marketing Officer Beth Comstock explains how software can play a huge part in making the aviation industry more sustainable The exciting thing about software and applied to some of the incredible technology we make, a jet engine is incredibly important. It takes us places, but some of the best activity that's coming and not only about making the engine faster, but making it more energy efficient. Software, in addition to material science, has to come together. Not only does a jet engine have to be lighter, but it has to be smarter, and it has to understand how to navigate all kinds of situations. It's not just the engine, it's the whole plane. It's in the area we call avionics, so it's using software to smartly give feedback to pilots. And so perhaps currently you'd have to land one way. There's a way you can use this software, and it tells you a more efficient way to land and navigate your jet engine. At GE, the future is at work. In 2014, The Foreign Desk is coming to Monocle 24. Interviews with presidents and prime ministers, reports from the front line, the debates, the arguments, the analysis on the world's most important stories. 
There are two conventional wisdoms in Europe at the moment. The first is that the far right will dominate and be very successful at the European elections. And the second is that the far right is on the rise across Europe generally. We need to correct those two assumptions. My hope would be that the new government in China feels sufficiently secure next year that they can ease up a little bit on the rather worrisome repressive tendencies. Every Saturday at 12 noon in London and available for download all week on monocle.com, iTunes and SoundCloud. This is a challenge to give them the knowledge, to give them the hope for the future that they could reintegrate into society, believe that they can get a job, get them to decouple from criminal activities. And we have more to do when it comes to these matters. I'm Steve Bloomfield. This is The Foreign Desk. Join us from Saturday, the 11th of January. Welcome back to the show. I am here joined in the studio with Poppy Shibamoto and creative director Rich Spencer-Powell. So another 10 issues down, 12 months on. What a nice time to reflect on our, some of our favourite highlights of the past year. Rich, let's start with you first. What have some been your favourite stories in um, Monaco over the past year? First of all, is this is this real or is this a test? Is this like a test to see if I've been paying attention for the last 12 months? Because <laughs> sometimes when you look back and you, you do so much in a year, you can't quite remember where, where you were at the start of it. But looking back, I think I'll start with a cover. I've got a favourite cover, and people say you should never work with children and animals. And we worked with a uh, <laughs> we worked with a husky. It's the second time we featured a dog on the cover, and uh, I think it's just a really lovely cover. Yeah, everyone really enjoyed the, the Arctic themed issue. I think that cover just was. Um, and how was that just, shoot? That was in Midori House, wasn't it? It was in Midori House. Um, what were the dogs called? There were two. One was called Alaska. Alaska. It's, that's not Alaska, I don't think. I don't think Alaska it made it the cover. I think it was Duchess or someone. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, she was quite a, she had quite a, quite a title. Better looking one of those two. Cover we girl. had two huskies and then shot with one of them that behaved better and had like better looking three-dimensional ears. Yeah. <laughs> they were supposedly professionals, although <laughs> how you grade them. Dogs can be. <laughs> so next year we do one with the children, yeah? Yeah, and dogs. Well, maybe that's that's 2015. Bobby, what about you? What's your been your favourite cover? Favourite cover? Can I talk about favourite expo instead? Later. Okay. <laughs> Got seven minutes. Okay, so favourite cover? Oh, because I don't actually like dogs. I didn't really enjoy doing that one. Although it looks good. Oh, which one? I think I like the one with uh, our Thai model kit, with uh, also a half Thai model, with a supermarket set on the back, grocery shop in the back, and yeah. then all the packaging design done by Rich, and then now in Tom Morris's kitchen in the barbecue. It sure is. Yeah, that There's was chopped nice. chopped tomatoes, which have peaches inside, <laughs> are particularly lovely. <laughs> it's sort of very crafty colour, I like that, yeah. colourful. Yeah, it was good. That was another fun one. And it was one of those things on paper, yeah, lovely. And then when it came to the actual week of doing it, you're like, right, so I have to design an entire supermarket on <laughs> top of everything else. And Yoshi, the designer who's, uh, who has to do all the craft things and doing the wrap downs all night. <laughs> yeah. Ready for following day. What would you prefer these kind of, you know, these stage set covers? Are they, the, I mean, obviously the fun ones to do, but. The thing with covers is, is I think it's, to me, it's one of the most challenging things you do in an issue sort of lifetime. As much as you want to plan it, you never quite know if the magic's going to be there on the day kind of thing. It's quite a hard thing. And that's actually what makes it quite exciting. And there's been a few, actually. There's a, We've got in the studio here this entrepreneur's cover, which we had to, uh, we built a shop front. Yeah. And again, it's staged, sort of deliberate, but it's a lot of work. And on the day, popping over, there was a few challenges there on that day. Like we we had to go and try and find a door because we felt we needed it in the set and you have to find it and <laughs> see if you can attach it and paint it. And it's always a nice journey and we shoot these things film and we always look at the first Polaroid and the last Polaroid at the end of the day and say, how do we go from there all the way to there? Because it starts off, it just is a guy in a T-shirt stood up against a bit of colour armour. Yeah, and in the end, there's it. a set and there's models and there's hair and makeup and everything's done. It's, yeah. it's quite a nice process, actually. I, I do enjoy the challenge of it. Yeah. But I think if you sort of gather together the 10 covers from the past year, I mean, there is a sort of a canon going through it, which sort of run back to issue one almost how do you or why do you kind of try and with tyler try and create this sort of recognizability of a monocle cover is it deliberate Um, or yeah it's deliberate i mean i think you have to kind of put your stamp on it and do that in repeatedly so that the the reader and the buyer recognizes it's yours 
at the same time you want to reinvent it for the regular people so mm. they feel they're getting something new so it's there's a challenge there in that you want to stay the same but you want to appear new so that you have to change the color and the main image and the cover graphics and you have to kind of reinvent yourself without going too far yeah so it's a bit of a challenge but it's a slow process over the course of a year so it's um minor evolution as you yeah. go along kind of thing and i guess you never quite know what's going to be a bestseller or what's going to fly off the shelves because of its no its good th- looks or no there isn't is it but totally I, arbitrary it's a little bit arbitrary you can try and apply some rules and some science to it and of course we do that but at the same time i think the lovely thing about design for print and editorial is that you wear your heart on your sleeve you do what you think is best you put it out on the shelf and just say please buy me yeah and stick to that and be confident and don't be whimsical and don't listen to focus groups and all those things you just got to be strong and what did you used to go to focus group never <laughs> but if you would, if you went to a focus group they'd probably say put rihanna on the cover and <laughs> i don't think it would work well, you said we never worked with husky. yeah never worked with animals children <laughs> rihanna <laughs> nigella uh, or poppy <laughs> <laughs> never on the cover always the other side so poppy let's i mean we just covered the front of the magazine let's go straight to the back to expo which is always a big big responsibility for you as our photo director So what's been your favorite expo from the past 10 issues? I think it, my favorite one is Kashuga from issue 69. Initially we wanted to shoot it like straight away and then put it into issue 68, but with planning and getting access to a place and um all that made it all difficult to shoot it so quickly. And so we had a longer time to plan it and book flights and really plan what to shoot and obviously made the shoot safe but also photographer and writer could research better so yeah i think something that we got more time to do properly like expo section i think especially this kashuga i think is a good one yeah it's got sort of day as well as night you see the whole town and the little bit of savavia of the place as well so it's really thorough and it's quite epic and cinematic as well mm. the slideshow that came on online is also going to tell a bit more story as well more pictures that we couldn't run from the issue and a story like that i mean it's not the easiest place to send a photographer no and a reporter do you when you're commissioning expo and you've got you know how many pages it is to fill with amazing shots are you sometimes nervous about the material you're going to get out of it yeah always not 100% sure but it's always it's nice to be able to put that responsibility to a photographer and leave it and see what comes out as well so like after seven years i guess i feel more confident about commissioning expo section and also like enjoy what more that i didn't realize it's going to be there mm. or lights or atmosphere or something that i didn't write in my brief would come back mm. as a result and so that's something nice to always look forward to and rich back to you i mean you've been in charge of quite a number of supplements this year what have been some of your favorites to do um i think the one that stands out actually is you'll like this tom it's the second design directory um because i think it's one of those things that well done we choose we choose a particularly nice stock for design directories that i think it's my favorite stock that we use it's this swedish paper monk and it's got a nice color to it and it just makes everything look quite satisfying i can't describe it any other way than that but when you get to it it's really kind of like hmm this is quite pleasant and i think the subject of course is design so it's always going to appeal most that of all the supplements i think that's what the one that will always appeal most to me So I think as a supplement I think that one is really good and there's a lot in there and I think there's a lot for kind of the reader to take away in terms of inspiration stuff to buy things like that. So that I think was a very good one. And then I think perhaps my favorite favorite was this little book we did in um issue 65 we did a little kind of quality of life thing. It's a little A5 book. It's a silly thing we used a fluorescent ink but everyone in the office absolutely loved it and it's again it just puts a little smile on your face. And that that issue is about quality of life so it should do that but it's a massive issue there's all sorts of things in there it's really dense and then you get this bright as a button a5 book with these funny little japanese doodles in there and yeah it's just a nice little breath of fresh air so there are two that i'm quite proud of this year definitely yeah. and what about stories just coming from a photography perspective or just simply your favorite standout stories um, you've done over the past year I like the fashion we shot in issue 69. It's for this studio story about themes for 2014. It was quite playful, quite fun. And I think we ran out black and white. It was just as kind of as high art as you can go really. Mm. And then there was an expo at the start of the year. I think it was the start of the year which we shot the new St Martin's building in London. 
And we don't often shoot stories in London. It's not because we're down on London, but it's just we cover the rest of the world. So there's a lot of competition from the rest of the world to get expos and things like that. But I think that was just a beautiful, optimistic, very thorough bit of journalism and, and photojournalism. It looked amazing. The portraiture was great. It made me want to go back to college, mm. teach them a thing or two. Uh, <laughs> and it's just a, lo- a lovely bit of development. It's a great architecture story. It's a great education story. And it was London was sunny on the day, so it looks beautiful. Yeah. Made you proud to be kind of a Londoner, kind of a Londoner. <laughs> Poppy, what about you? Any other favourite stories? Oh, the Nakasima story, the design. That was my favourite, That I think. was really nice. Yeah. I mean, we shot that on film, and again, we had a good time to sort of shoot on film and get it delivered, and that, I think, looked really nice. The light was nice. Obviously, house and subject matter is nice. But sometimes when you have more pages as well, you can show it's not just like what you want to see, but what photographer can show us that we might not see usually. So that was really nice. Yeah. And the layout was brilliant on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so is the editing. <laughs> Guys, thank you very much for joining me. Coming up, we hit the catwalk to talk fashion with Anna Santi of Drapers. London, New York, Tokyo. This is Monocle 24. London, New York, Tokyo. Tuvai Monocle 24. Londres, Nova York, Tokyo. London, New York, Tokyo. London is New York Tokyo. Monocle 24. This is Monocle 24. We continue our look back at 2013 by casting our focus to the trends, trips and tribulations of fashion. With me in the studio to discuss the stories of the year as we see it, it's Anna Santi, Deputy Editor of Drapers. Welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you. So, 2013. Yeah. It's what been... have some of the, been the, the biggest stories that have... Oh, I think probably the biggest story, certainly in the designer luxury sector, has yeah. been the news that Angela Arendt, Chief Executive of Burberry, is stepping down next year to join oh. Apple. And that Christopher Bailey uh, is being promoted to to her role, but also keeping his chief creative officer role. Um, how is that? I mean, how can you go from being a fashion designer to running one of the biggest luxury houses in the world? That's, how- what, a, <laughs> that's what a lot of people have been asking. And certainly the investors mm. were a little bit concerned when the news broke that that, that, that would be happening. The thing is that... Um, you know, I, I think that Christopher has done a phenomenal job at Burberry. Sometimes it's quite difficult to split what has been his ideas and what has been Angela's ideas because they've worked brilliantly as this dream team. Mm. Um, but he has certainly lived and breathed the brand. And he's he's been amazing, you know, in terms of implementing really cool ideas, mm-hmm. um, be it through social media or through the store and certainly in the collection but he's not he's not just a designer you know he's he's a visionary mm. and that certainly i think why they hired angela you know they they didn't hire her because she can add up <laughs> it's because mm-hmm. she can she's got the vision to to take burberry to where she and christopher have taken it now so he's certainly much more than a designer but it, it, it it's a big ask mm. and it'll be interesting to see yeah, to see, see how he, he could do it. Yeah, and from one sort of big figurehead to another, um, Louis Vuitton. We spoke about it earlier in the show with Tyler, but yes, big year for Louis Vuitton. Definitely, big development with Mark Jacobs leaving. Yeah, and, you know, he was there for sixteen years, much like Christopher Bailey mm. and Angela Arendt. He was also being credited with turning Louis Vuitton into, you know, quite a boring luxury label into what that you know people refer to as the jewel in LVMH's crown now it's a brilliant brand global a brand that everybody aspires to um so yeah it was uh, a a bit of a shock yeah and he's being replaced by Nicolas Gesquier from who's formerly of Balenciaga yeah how because Mark Jacobs obviously he was the first ready-to-wear designer at Louis Mm -hmm. Vuitton you know fashion didn't exist Mm -hmm. for the brand before him what kind of pressure will be on Nicholas to sort of reinvent or develop or bring Uh, his own kind of appeal to the jewel in the crown of LVMH yeah huge pressure Um, and it's interesting because you know part of the reason that um, Nicholas left Balenciaga was 
you know, I, I, they didn't really get on in the end, it, it mm. appears. And, you know, there's this quote uh, that, that Nicholas said about the brand becoming so corporate that it was no longer even linked to fashion. Mm. So that's that's certainly an interesting view to take because actually Louis Vuitton is a huge commercial brand. It's yeah. a much bigger business than Balenciaga. And actually the, the leather goods business at LVMH, is uh, at Louis Vuitton, is still a huge part of the, the sales for, for, for the brand. So he's got such a big job and a big commercial job. So he has to really find a balance between creativity and commerciality mm. but i think he can he can do it if he's given the freedom and the support and and you look at how long mark stayed there 16 years you don't stay somewhere for that long if you're not enjoying it and certainly you know mark is a huge personality and i don't think he would have taken too kindly to being told what to do each time he needs he needed that freedom and i think nicholas would be similar yeah and he could be just what they need, actually, because even though Mark Jacobs did a brilliant job, brands need to evolve. Uh, and I think the two have very different aesthetics, uh, That the two designers. Yeah. And actually, Mark Jacobs has endorsed the appointment, saying mm. that the fact that the two are so different is just what Louis Vuitton needs. Yeah. So it's you know great to have that kind of endorsement from, from Mark. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and staying on, in, coming back to London now, I mean, mm. this year was the year that J. Crew finally yeah. opened up in London. Yeah. Much uh, to the pleasure of all the people in Midori House. <laughs> a long time coming. A really long time and coming. And a lot of hype. I know. It, it's been, we've been talking about it for a year. Yeah. Um, I, I know that, you know, when Abercrombie opened here, when Victoria's Secrets opened here, we, you know, we all talked about it. But I don't think, I can't remember a bigger build up to this. Mm. Um, and it's, quite incredible because it's just a shop but but, you know that there are queues outside on opening day I mean admittedly I do think that a lot of the attention has come from London it's very London centric and it's come from very fashion savvy shoppers rather than your average consumer so it'll be interesting to see how well the brand does here Mm. beyond the first couple of months Mm. Um, but what do you predict um, oh, it, it, it's, I it's quite, a tough I mean, one. I love Jake Crew. They're for yeah, fashion sales and advertiser, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but kind of off the record, you know, I found it really disappointing. I thought the shop was it, just, it's kind of like slightly expensive gap. Well, exactly. I, I think, I think the problem is, first of all, it, yes, the shop, I think lacks some of the retail theatre that you might expect from J Crew. Mm. So you know, you walk down Regent Street and you go into it, and yes, it's very big and it's very plush and modern, but it's not really any. It's not different. Um, and I think a big problem that they might have is the pricing. So you know, they they play on that premium high street field. Mm. And it's crowded, whether it's the likes of Whistles or Hobbs or Reese, even, you know, traditional wholesale brands that now have their standalone stores, mm. even the premium offerings of more mainstream um, retailers. There's so much competition that it really needs to stand out. And the problem is that the pricing here is more expensive than in the US. Mm. Not across the range, but certainly generally. And the thing is that with shoppers being so well travelled, with the internet, you can you can compare. And I I'm a bit concerned that after the initial hype, that it, it might not be sustainable. We have to we have to wait and see. The queues were certainly there, and I interviewed Mickey Drexler two days before, mm. and he said to me, "I don't care about queues. I care about the long term." So he's very aware of that yeah. as well. You know, the product will speak for itself. Absolutely, and it is a lovely product. It is not really lovely, yeah. particularly the menswear. Actually, I yeah. thought the quality is is it's it's, it's better. I think absolutely. And, yeah. And what do you think of the shop on the Lamb's Conduit, which is the sort of that, a slightly smaller? Yeah, that's a cute deep. shop, actually. Um, Why do you think they did that? What was the is it marketing or uh, I, a little bit? Yeah, I think so. Because Lamb Conduit Street is such a cool street yeah. and it's very independent. Um, so that shop is like a little treasure trove. Yeah, and I, I think you know men quite like that. Um, but I do think it's a, a, a marketing exercise. They've got the women's wear shop in Chelsea as well, course, another yeah. little one. Um, and I think it's interesting that they all open together, mm. um, and that makes a big impact. But yeah. you know they're all still in London. So that's the other thing to remember, you know, can they go 
beyond London. I don't know if they have the um, the brand awareness outside the capital and outside, you know, the really kind of the shoppers that care about fashion yeah. rather than just about clothes. Yeah, fantastic. Anna Santi, Deputy Editor of Drapers, thank you very much for coming into the show. And we'll be back this time next week when we forecast ahead to the fashion stories of 2014. The global industrial internet is a vast resource, gathering and refining data from machines, facilities, fleets and industrial networks to improve their efficiency. We recently spoke with GE's Vice President Bill Rue about the use of the innovation today. What particular sectors are using this internet or could benefit from from this uh, new internet? One sector that really gets me excited is aviation. We partnered with Accenture and we launched a joint venture called Telaris. They have some really hard, critical analytics that run through that data and it identifies predictively where they think things are going to break. And then they work with the airlines to best manage that so there's no unplanned or unscheduled maintenance. Now imagine you no longer have cancellations due to mechanical problems. How much would we all love that? GE. Imagination at work. In Istanbul, they took to the streets in a battle for green space. In Sao Paulo, they marched in their thousands in a fight for cheaper buses. In Athens, they shouted loud to demand a better run capital. And every week in London, there's a rollerblading convoy that reclaims the streets for the pedestrians and pedal pushers. That's why urbanism matters, why words like density, infrastructure and smart cities need to be dragged out of city hall conclaves and turned into a public debate. And that's why every week Monocle's show, The Urbanist, reports from cities around the world that are getting horribly wrong and deliciously right, visits the mavericks and mayors with a vision further than the edge of their desk and asks the questions that will shape how we live tomorrow. To me, placemaking is a sacred community process. It's about an organic way that communities can evolve and shape the spaces that are important to them. Every 20 years, the city gets rebuilt. There's probably not a lot of cities in the world that gets rebuilt every 20 years. People respond to variety, and cities need a richness and diversity. Oh, and we take time to savour the softer side of metropolitan living too, from the need for playfulness to places to pause in the melee. Presented by me, Andrew Tuck, The Urbanist premieres every Thursday at 1900 London time, and you can also download it from monocle.com or iTunes. During our design coverage of possibly the world's biggest event of its kind, London Design Week, I sat down with the man who co-founded the event, Sir John Sorrell. The chairman of LDF, Sir John's 40-year career ranges from the creation of one of Europe's biggest and most successful design businesses to his current role as a UK business ambassador. He told me what inspired him to establish the festival all those years ago over a cup of tea in the Monocle Café. Oh, the festival's changed uh, enormously in terms of scale and in terms of its international audience. So 11 years ago when we started, there were 40 events in London. There are now hundreds, way over 300, and we think about 400,000 visitors, 60,000 people from abroad. So it's much, much bigger. But also, I think the quality's gone up, and often that doesn't happen when you get scale, but I think that's the case. What are your favourite events coming up over the next couple of days? What are you most excited about seeing? There's a lot to see. Well, of course, it started last weekend and it runs through to the end of the coming weekend. Some of the things I've seen which I would really recommend, I went to the opening of Endless Stair, which is this extraordinary structure sitting outside Tate Modern. And Bardak Sirikan by Clark of Arup. It is a magnificent piece technically, but also it's so much fun. And if you climb it... You get these great views across the Thames and over to St Paul's. And it's based on an Isha drawing. Uh, so it's, a, it's about 15 interlocked staircases which don't go anywhere except to this, <laughs> up to this viewing platform. Enormous fun. I would also very definitely go, recommend going to the V&A, Victorian Albert Museum, which is packed full of different installations for the festival, including um, a 30-metre-long chandelier by Omar Arbel, mm. uh, which I think is the longest biggest chandelier creation in this country for 100 years and that's just inside the entrance just walk in look up 
brilliant. Wow. And then there's the big blockbuster, the big showcase trade shows, 100% design junction, yeah. tent and all those. But I think you have to discover for yourself. And I, you know, I would recommend look at the website, get hold of the guide. The guide's about an inch thick. <laughs> there's so much in it. And plan your programme. And of course, last night was the Design Oscars. Design Oscars is great. <laughs> Thank you. I like, I like that phrase. I love it. The London Design Medal. Well, that's the seventh year of the medal. And um, it was absolutely wonderful evening. It was very special. The medal went to the, the London Design Medal went to Peter Saville, and the Lifetime Achievement Award went to Dieter Rams, who yeah. came over from Germany to accept it. And it was wonderful because we sat Dieter opposite Terence Conran, who received that same award last year. Wow! They're exact contemporaries. They know each other, and I was very privileged to talk to Dieter a little bit, and um, I was absolutely fascinated because I asked him but what his hobbies were. <laughs> you know, people think, you know, great designers like him don't have hobbies. They it's think just designing yeah. beautiful watches and furniture. <laughs> Do you know what he loves? He loves gardening and he does bonsai trees. Really? He's got a, a as he says, it's not a Japanese garden, but it's a, uh, it's a European version of a Japanese garden and nobody else is allowed to clip his bonsais. Well, a man can of you, such precision, I can, yeah. Can you imagine how beautiful that must be? And we gave the Design Entrepreneur Award to David Constantine, who is another extraordinary man, I think a genius, and who, you know, I've known David for a very long time, and you know, he says, well, I try to help people who are worse off than I am. Um, well, goodness me, he's a hero of mine too. Uh, so it was a fantastic evening, yeah. and, and it followed on from the other Oscars, as you call them, <laughs> over the years. Um, and I think it's now very... It's a sort of very desirable award. And how important is it, or how much of a factor is it, that London is, is the sort of the production hub as well? This is where all the students are, the studios, where you know, young little designers are setting up shop, which doesn't happen to a lot of the other design capitals. London is the home of design education. You know, we've yeah. got a 150-year history. This is where it all started after the Great Exhibition. And so we... Uh, design is embedded in the, in the very nature of the city. Mm. I'm chairman of uh, University of the Arts London, so we've got 18,000 students in London. Lots of those are from abroad, and um, you again get this extraordinary international mix. People come here to study, and they stay, and they set up their business. But also lots of people come here from other countries to make this their home and yeah. to set up their business because they think this is the most creative community in the world. And if you're a creative person, you've got to be in a creative community. You can't operate otherwise. So I'm incredibly lucky because I've watched this happen. <laughs> it wasn't like this when I was a young man, yeah. you know, starting out as a designer when I was 19. Uh -huh. It's completely different. But that is so exciting. And I don't know another city in the world that is like that. Yeah. I'm sort of thinking about the other 51 weeks of the year. What is the sort of design industry like at the moment in London? Well, the design industry is um, not immune from recession. Mm. I've been through about five during my career. But the point about the design industry is always at the forefront of regeneration yeah. because everyone in the end goes to designers, whatever discipline, mm -hmm. to create the new ideas which are going to get them out of the recession and make them more money. Yeah. So the design industry is always a few steps in front of the game. And I'm looking around now talking to people and I can see some very definite signs that people are you know, doing a bit better than they were last year and that's a bit better than the year before. It, there was a very difficult period three or four years ago where there were a lot of redundancies and a lot of people in trouble. I think that's changing um, and I think it's because in the end you've got to turn to design because how else can you differentiate? Only one can be the cheapest and you're certainly not going to win by putting thousands more people on a job. The only way you can be better and be best is to design. Sir John Searle there, chairman of London Design Festival, speaking to me from the Monocle Cafe. Stand back from your letterboxes and tone up your biceps because the biggest ever issue of Monocle is about to hit subscribers' doormats and newsstand shelves. The December-January issue helps you bid farewell to 2013 and look over the horizon to 2014 with our soft power survey, the Monocle 100 and our travel top 50. In the culture section this month, we look at how Art Basel Miami has sparked a resurgence in the art scene in Colombia, Brazil, and Argentina. 
we put on our board shorts and head down to San Clemente in California, where an old-school magazine for the surf community is refusing to water down its offering for the digital age. In the design section, we look to the future, meeting the heirs to the throne of design family businesses in Denmark, Bali and Brazil. The CEOs of Artec and Todds tell us about the year ahead. And then we visit the home of a South African national architectural icon as Cape Town celebrates its position as world design capital in 2014. In the edit section, we take you on a shopping spree in Lisbon, visiting inspirational stores for Christmas gift giving. Plus, we publish our annual Travel Top 50, a roundup of the best planes, trains, hotels, restaurants, services and special discoveries that have made our trips over the past 12 months more enjoyable. The Monocle December-January double issue is on newsstands now. And to close the show, let's turn our eye to the not insignificant and highly contentious world of architecture. Thanks to a global recession, a focus on sustainability and more young designers entering the profession than ever, the business of architecture around the world is under the microscope more than ever. To close up, let's don our white overalls and gaze through the lens at 2013's offerings from this most omnipresent of design trades. I'd like to welcome our Tokyo Bureau Chief, Fiona Wilson, to the show. Thank you very much. Fiona, welcome. So... Looking back over the last year, I mean, it's sort of one man's year, wasn't it, in particular? Yeah, I mean, there's always a lot of building in Japan. I mean, we were really looking a lot at So Fujimoto. Yeah. He's, he's he's young, but he's he's just come up. He's come through the ranks. He's emerged as the sort of leading young architect in Japan. Yeah. It always happens. He's He just turns out to be the man of his generation. And yeah. he did the uh, pavilion at the Serpentine this exactly, year. Exactly, sort of when he yeah really hit the sort of international spotlight, mm. wasn't it? Yeah, I think that it's amazing how that particular commission is each year really attracts a lot of attention. And, you know, it, it's it's almost like it's a statement, isn't it? A statement of intent. And I think so Fujimoto showed what he does is he's very interested in this. It's almost like non-architecture, yeah. this inside, outside. What is architecture? How does it relate to the environment? Um, he does talk about sustainability, but actually it's much more conceptual than that. Um, Absolutely. And it's sort of working in that vein of Japanese architects, isn't it? That sort of Kengo Kuma where the built environment meets the natural world. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit really... And it's something he talks about a lot um, and why a lot of his buildings actually look quite strange in a funny way because it's almost like he doesn't want to do anything too intrusive. So there's a there's a very poetic kind of absence of building in some ways. He's a very amiable person in the flesh, isn't he? You've interviewed him. I have. He's very, very nice. I mean, it's interesting you go to his office because he threw up a bit of controversy this year. He was talking about using interns and has a really strong kind of... It, it, tradition in Japan of interns working in architects' office, famously, you know, sleeping bags under the desk, really working their socks off. And I think some people think that's not really okay. Not in Japan, considered totally fine. And so Fujimoto just said, "Well, that's what we do in Japan, and it's it works. It's great for the architect. It's good for the interns." And his office is full of interns from all over the world. Um, wow! And that's actually standard practice in Tokyo. You yeah. know, you go to any of the offices, Kengo Kuma, wherever, it's full of interns. Amazing. Um, so well, that's Fujimoto's practice develops. He'll probably need. Dozens and dozens more of sleeping yeah, bags. Yeah, already. Under the desk. Yeah, I think Especially it's it's next yeah. year. Standing room only, I think there shortly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's stay in Japan. Obviously, where you're based. What other couple of projects over the past twelve months that have sort of caught your eye? Well, I think one of, of the yeah one of the things I really really liked, and again, it's so Fujimoto again. Um, there was a great project earlier in the year called House Vision that Kenya Hara organised. He got together a group of really top architects, all, all our favourites, um, and, and just some really big names, Shigeru Ban, Kengo mm. Kuma, Iso Fujimoto being one, Toyo Ito. And he asked them to design a house in conjunction with a, a company, you know, it could have been Toto, Lixil, these companies who do much really, really practical systems for living. And it's like, what is the house for the future? How could we be living in the future? Um, and it wasn't like crazy, futuristic, this will never happen. These were real possibilities of houses. And it was fascinating to see these very, very, you know, these great architectural minds turning their hand to something very, very practical. Who is your favourite? Who do you think came up the most interesting? Well, I mean, so Fujimoto's was very interesting, you know, not surprisingly very conceptual. I like Toyo Ito's, I have to say. That was great. It was very much, it looked back to traditional architecture, 
it was about this, you know, slightly living outdoors that j- traditional architects used to make the most of that because, you know, Japan has this very, very hot summer. Mm. And Shigeru Ban did a great house, very practical. I was quite surprised. You know, there was no cardboard <laughs> Made a carp, pole. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not a bit. I mean, it was actually a house you could move into and wow. uh, I liked it. Yeah, it was great. And Toy Ito obviously won the Pritzker Prize this year. Yeah, I mean, long overdue, I yeah. think. I mean, you couldn't meet a more modest, humble man, but I mean, really, it was... About time he won. He's done so many buildings that have just really redefined. I think particularly engineering. I mean, he's he's an architect who who really acknowledges engineers, structural engineers, and all his buildings just push those boundaries. And he they couldn't be done without very very advanced engineering. And I think that's what's great about him. He's a, he's a collaborator. He he and he acknowledges who else he works with. And what other, on the sort of lower scale of things, other developments that you've got your eye on in Tokyo that have got ex- you excited over well, last what, year? One I really liked, it was, a, it was a, an interesting little development. It was an old station that had been empty since the 40s and JR East, Japan Rail East, I think it's East Japan Railways, in fact, um, they have a retail division, very incredible powerhouse now of retail. Um, and they took over the station as a, a retail development and it's done really, really well. It's, it's red brick arches. And instead of just saying, okay, we're basically going to gut it and knock it down, they really use the old structure. So when you go there, you feel you're in the arches. Wow. You get the sense of a, of a station They've even got a cafe on the platform. What was the platform? It's almost quite eerie in a funny way. And the, the cafe is, is surrounded by glass, so you can still see the tracks, the trains Amazing. going by. It's fantastic. Is that quite Japanese? I, I'm more identified then with this sort of scrap and build culture that they'd rather just knock something down and rebuild it. Mm. It's very, you know, happens all over East London, mm. these kind of reusing old railway arches and mm. things. But it doesn't strike me as a particularly Japanese thing, sort of no. reuse old developments. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, generally the excuse is it's not earthquake proof, you know, let's just flatten it. Um, and it, that's why I love this development. It was saying, no, there's something worth preserving. And they were very keen to say, it's not about shopping this this development. It's trying to, the, the, the neighbourhood's a bit quiet. Yeah, it's urban regeneration. And it's it's trying to connect to the community. There's a gallery space. It's it's much more than just shopping. And mm. um, and I, you know, and they, they made the most of the building. But no, you're absolutely right. Generally, there's a big scrap and build situation in Japan and there's an awful lot of facadism where you know you'll keep the facade of a lovely building but you go through the doors and it's absolutely brand spanking new and I don't really think you keep the atmosphere of a building that way and um, yeah that's why I like this this Mansebashi project it's called Marsh Acute uh, not, not doesn't trip off the tongue that easily. <laughs> I can't imagine Japanese. It's any more easier to pronounce. <laughs> but, but yeah, take note. It's worth going to see if you go to Tokyo. Fantastic. Well, hopefully next year we can get a little visit in. Fiona, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Cheers. You've been listening to a very special design edition of The Globalist with me, Tom Morris, on Monocle 24. That's your lot. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 as we head into the trends, trials and tribulations of the year ahead. And don't forget you can catch our weekly show on Monocle 24 dedicated to design. Section D, hosted by me, every Tuesday at 1900 hours London time. My thanks as ever to our producer Aled John and Sam Impey for technical production. I'm Tom Morris. Thanks very much for tuning in. See you all soon. Bye bye. Monocle 24.